0: Welcome to the New Chemist Podcast. We're so glad you're listening. Feel free to download this podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and a variety of other platforms. Here on the New Chemist, we discuss chemistry, which simply put is the science of change, as well as the other sciences, careers, community, research and Nobel Prize lectures in chemistry and the analysis the of their speeches. We're happy you're tuning in my guest today is dr trevor johnson thanks for joining me today it is so good to hear from you just briefly i'll inform my audience about you so trevor johnson trevor johnson is a budding developing Bahamian leader he has completed his bachelor of education with biology and biological sciences at the university of the bahamas he completed a master's of science in climate change from ue university of west indies cave hill and he completed his PhD in Crisis, Emergency, and Disaster Management. Uh, He has also served as a strategic advisor, a climate change specialist and consultant. He has served as a founder of the Bahamas Climate Change Campaign, and he has also served as a disaster risk management consultant at the IDB. Trevor is on a good path to making a difference in the Bahamas. It is so good to have him on today as a guest. So Trevor, what have been your long-standing interests in the field of science?
1: Hi, thank you, David. First, it's so great to be here with you. And yes, I've had a long, very, very long interest in science. You know, at one point in my life, I think I wanted to be a doctor, but that quickly shifted when I fell in love with teaching. Um, i when i completed when i completed high school you know i i love science and i wanted to, i really wanted to share that love and you know when i felt that teaching was one of the best ways to share that love about science um so i taught high school for about three years um and then too i kind of, i switched more so from the biological sciences i was very interested in biology especially about the human anatomy i switched from that and i went into environmental sciences I became very interested in climate change and I did my PhD in disaster management. Um, while disaster management is a very, very uh, interdisciplinary field, you know, it's very much so more aligned on the social sciences side of things. But I've always had a love for science, always.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, Yeah, because uh, I've looked at the megatrends and for and while the megatrends involves uh, there being a heavy emphasis on climate change and inter- intergrading policies that are able to mitigate some of the changes uh, occurring in our climate so yeah i think you will find a lot of utility in your degree or with your degree and with your training so how do you maintain view of the bigger picture in your career and in your life in general so when you face obstacles and challenges which i i'm certain you have faced um what have you done? What toolkit do you use? What strategies do you employ in order for you to keep a good perspective or a healthy, holistic view of what's going on? What do you do, especially for your academic pursuits?
1: Um, in terms of my academic pursuits, um, as cliche as it sounds, I was always a very hard worker. You know, okay. I was always one of those persons who was driven by passion. And I believe that once you found something that you were passionate and passionate about, you know, that made the obstacles a bit more, you know, they didn't come up as much, you know, because, you know, I didn't have to deal with issues such as fatigue or like doing not doing what I wanted to do because I was doing what I loved. So that helped me a lot, you know, on this path. But of course, like you said, there would have been barriers along the way. And I think with those barriers, whenever I experienced them, I think the first thing I would do is would often pray you know i come from a very strong faith background um i'm christian in terms of religion um but i think i have a very well i know i have a very strong faith in god um so that definitely would have that helped me along the way and then two i try not to necessarily look at the negative and things you know when things happen yeah. sometimes we see them as a lesson you know as a lesson you know rather oh, yeah, than yeah, curse yeah. a lesson like i look at situations and more so, what is this trying to teach me? What skill is this trying to, you know, get out of me? Or what am I going to learn from the situation? Of course, you know, you you're a bit down when you get disappointments or barriers or obstacles. Yeah, but I think saying, Yeah, but well, when we focus on the negative, we can't focus on the negative too long. Yeah, you have yeah, yeah. to necessarily look at it as in terms of how am I going to learn from this experiences, this experience, or how is this going to make me a better person?
0: yeah I agree so yeah you almost seeing your experiences with a degree of uh, pedagogical value or teaching what can this teach me what skill set do I need to employ or what skill set can I even gain in the circumstance I could carry with me to the next challenge or next opportunity that I'm going to encounter so yeah that's very true and I too have uh, uh, faith in I I too have my faith perspective my Christian faith perspective and I could say it definitely helps me as well. So sure. how have you been adaptive and creative in the field of science? How, no, I'm sure you, and teaching, in teaching, I've heard a lot of discussions about education. So I'm sure in your classroom, you probably had to employ some a degree of creativity or adapting different types of uh, content to make the students engage. So can you, can you give an example of uh, ways you have been adaptive and creative, even in your teaching or in your learning? when it comes to science and disasters and climate change and disaster management?
1: Okay, great. Um, so in terms of being a high school teacher, yeah, I, I definitely had to learn to adapt. You know, because I was a student, I always thought science very easy. Something I love, something that I always did. But when I began to teach high school, I realized that everyone, as you know, as expected, did not share that love. Um, a lot of students didn't like science because in terms of what they... But science had become in the modern education system, you know, a lot of teachers necessarily chalk and talk with science, you know, especially biology, students get a lot of notes, you know, they associate science with a lot of writing, a lot of memorization, you know, things like that. But I tried to take that away from it. I, And in particular, health science, health science is a lot of content, especially for junior high students, you know, learning about the different body systems, cells and tissues and all of those types of things, you know, those are things that can become very overwhelming, especially for seventh, eighth, or ninth grader. So, what I learned in terms of how to make my lessons more interesting was I learned about this five E approach when I did my when I did my um, bachelor degree, and I felt like that helped a lot in terms of you engage students, you allow them to explore, then you explain, then you expand, and then you evaluate. And for me, where I really saw my students come to life was in the exploration phase. I'll give an example. Whenever I would teach a unit on blood, blood is a very hard topic for students to grasp. Why? Because when they look at blood, all they see is red liquid blood. You know, trying to tell students that blood is comprised of plasma and cells, different things, it's very difficult. So what I usually do is I would, you know, let students actually make blood. So what we would do is we'd get, I'd get water, I'd put a little um, yellow dye to represent plasma. And then I'd allow them, I'd usually soak Cheerios in red food coloring so that when Mm -hmm. they put the Cheerios inside the liquid itself, it becomes red. And -hmm. then they understand the hemoglobin is found in red blood cells and it Mm -hmm. helps to give blood that color. So it's -hmm. just activities like that that help students to see the connection between what science is. And how you can actually see it—it's real, it's here, it's there—and it makes the learning process more meaningful. You know, you know, as a 27, 28-year-old, or even as adults, certain concepts are very easy for us to grasp. When you're talking to 11-year-olds, when they cut themselves, when they cut themselves, they only see this red liquid oozing, and trying to explain to them that your platelets and 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 plasma and red blood cells and different types of white blood cells running through your veins—that could become a very, very complex you know, topic for them to grasp. So what I usually try to do is have some sort of engagement and exploration activity so the students could see the content, you know, so that they can experience the content and they don't necessarily become a passive audience, but rather they become active participants.
0: Oh, that's good. That's very good. Yeah, I've heard about the 5e method too. I tried to integrate that uh, in one of the books that I'm working on and updating uh, in terms of high school chemistry. So, yeah, oh, heard, nice. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I've heard of that approach. But, yeah, that, that's very good when it comes to discussing the composition of blood in terms of uh, formed elements and plasma and all this other good stuff. Yeah, that's very, very good. So, um, how did you seek or find the right environment for you to thrive scientifically and intellectually? How do you go about finding a good institution that works for you? And how are you sure when you're searching? how do you like seek and search through to find the environment that works for you not only scientifically but also intellectually that allows you to grow and develop as a person and also as a professional so um what do you do how do you go about the process
1: so i'll give an example in terms of when i was doing my phd in terms of when looking for a place to study in terms of how i found my university Um, I did my bachelor's degree in the Bahamas at home. I did my master's degree in Barbados, regionally focused. At that point, after completing my master's, I knew I wanted an international focus. The area that I'm interested in is the environment, you know, climate change, disaster management. And I think, especially coming from small island developing states, it's very important that you have a regional perspective and you have a global view as well. And I wanted that. So that's why... really made my decision with the united states now in terms of when looking at a program there are very few programs in the united states that offers a phd in disaster management that's the first thing as i would have mentioned disaster management is a very interdisciplinary field meaning that a lot of and it's even it's even expressed in where these degree programs are housed so example some universities they would have a phd in disaster management for example in the engineering department where others would have it in the public policy some would have it in sociology okay and so that that just get that just goes to show you how interdisciplinary this field is um and what i did was when looking i didn't want a specialization in a field so i didn't want a disaster management Degree that was, or a engineer, a PhD in engineering that was specialized in disaster management, or public policy PhD that was in disaster management. I wanted a full PhD degree in disaster management. Okay. And I, I, why I wanted that? Because when in my working experience between my masters and my PhD, I had a gap. I think a gap year or two. And I started to work with my country's Ministry of Disaster Preparedness, Management, and Reconstruction. Uh-huh. And I realized that there were so much things that we did not know. And I know that that knowledge cannot be filled without having a deep and intimate understanding with the body of knowledge associated with disaster management. That was my biggest okay. with doing a PhD. Okay. In terms of why I wanted a pure degree in disaster management, I looked at the uh, or how I found it, I looked at the department's mission, vision, and understanding. That gives you a very, very clear understanding of how a department views a particular academic discipline, especially one such as disaster management, which is a very young and emerging academic discipline. Okay. It is indeed an academic discipline. It isn't as mature as areas like chemistry or sociology or psychology. Mm-hmm. But when you're when you're pursuing fields in this area, it's very important you have a very good understanding of how departments view disaster management yeah um what are their research interests you know and i am also interested in terms of disaster risk management i am not so i'm not as interested in for example the risk understanding risk uh-huh. or, or for example climate gains. adaptation yeah i am also interested in understanding the human experiences after disasters and before disasters i'm i'm interested in understanding what makes individuals and households recover from events
0: what okay, makes communities
1: yeah. recover?s Yeah, and for example, I I want to understand, you know, what holy com- what makes a person truly prepared? You know, is it canned goods, water bottle, or is it something else? And the literature tells us something else. So I am very interested in understanding the human experiences, how humans create with vulnerability, how we cope with them, and how we interact with them. Yeah. And so, you know, those are some of the things that really got me going in terms of how I found an institution that worked for me in the realm of. You
0: know, in my terms of my PhD and other studies. Wow, that's good, dude. I I, I instantly reminded me of a book that I went through, um, by the Harvard Business Review, mental toughness, and yes. also this this book, um, by Frederick Flock. I'm still working on, uh, the resilience, um, this the resilience book by Frederick Flock. But yeah, dude, I, one of the things that that book talked about, especially I'm talking about the Harvard Business Review book on mental toughness. One of the things I'm talking about is how sometimes many uh, successful individuals have viewed the challenging experiences as crucibles. So for example, yes. it, it was not just a hard experience, but they also saw the opportunity to be refined, to skill up. And so I, I was listening to this masterclass by Indra Nui and she talked about how um, you have to develop a hip pocket skill. So you have to develop the skill set that you can, because when you come to a job, she she made the point how you arrive on the job, the prestigious school that you just came from is all, after a few months or so. That's yesterday's news. People are mm-hmm. now interested in what skill, what uh knowledge base is this person bringing to the table that yes. we can use within our organization. So yeah, dude, I think and I think having the capacity to be resilient especially in challenging times, times of uncertainty, is a, heavy, a very, very valuable skill. And I think, um, you know, many times we talk about post-traumatic stress um, and that sometimes occurs as a result of disasters. But we also, the book also mentioned, this is the mental of this book by Harvard Business Review, they also mentioned post-traumatic growth. How for some individuals, after going through a hard experience, their growth is, 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 un, is almost it's very different compared to Mm -hmm. other individuals it's very different and they have developed skills that they carry with them that's on a higher tier and allows them to function at a higher level because we i'm sure you may have but i know i have read of stories of people who go through some really challenging times and they produce like seminal works like they produce like high quality research or high quality findings or high quality literature that makes uh, impacts and indelible images of people's minds for generations beyond them. Even after they're gone, their are is still making an impression. Definitely. So yeah, dude, I think that's very important, being able to understand what and how do people respond before and after disasters. I think that, that body of knowledge that you're working on or even that you have worked on, I think it will be useful, especially for us in the Bahamas. Agreed. So yeah, yeah. Um, what have been your most effective and impactful ideas to date?
1: So in terms of my notes, um, I'd probably start off with education. <laughs> um, in terms of my, I, in when I taught, I taught in a very, what word to use? I wouldn't want to say rural community, you know, a low socioeconomic background community. And one of the programs that, you know that was existing existed that existed before I started to teach was save our seventh graders program, okay, because we right realized it. that we had students coming into the seventh grade. They were very very bright, but by the time as they got to like ninth and tenth grade, they were still bright, but their work ethic they were not as they were not as hardworking as they were when they first entered high school. So we started to save our seventh graders program, and a, a part of it was. That you know, some students in the seventh grade would take the health science BJC um, at seventh grade level. Now, oh, when I is. first came at 8 Mile or at the school, um what what they did was they would select maybe about five to ten students from the top set. In mm. the three years that I taught, I told them no, that I wanted to take the entire top set to BJC in the seventh grade. It didn't make, to me, it didn't make sense picking five or 26 or 27 children to take the whole class, you know, the whole everybody, you know, those who are extremely high flyers, those who are kind of average and those who were, you know, they needed a bit more help. I wanted to take all of them to do it. And in the three years that, you know, I that I took those students to Health Science, VJC, we got 100% A to D passes. And about ninety five percent A to C passes and fifty percent is at the seventh grade.
0: Wow. That's you know, I on. think
1: that yeah, I think that thank you for that. I think that's a very remarkable accomplishment given yeah. the background of that school and you know what's associated with it. In terms mm-hmm. of as a professional, as a disaster management um professional consultant, yeah. Yeah, consultant, I think one of my greatest accomplishments so far would be you know, I'm currently working because I can't speak on behalf of my organization. I just say that I'm currently working on a project, mm. a very, very important project in the space of disaster management, and oh. has to do with how we professionalize disaster management. How do we build capacity in the space in the Bahamas? You know, yeah, yeah. we live in a very low-lying, vulnerable, you know, place in the world. The Bahamas oh. is very vulnerable. It's very low-lying. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And yeah. through that project, we're currently working with higher education partners mm-hmm. to see how best we can meet and fill capacity gaps in this space. And I think that's a great contribution to disaster management, considering the fact, you know, of our vulnerabilities, our realities, and then there's a clear human capacity gap in country.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that's that's a very interesting point you make. And you know, this is the thing, Trevor, you know, one thing that I've come to see and come to understand, especially with my discussions with other people and also my own reading, you know, disaster from my understanding your ability to cope with a challenge or a disaster or some major crisis it also is your education does come into play not just in terms of your ability to accrue financial resources but also mm-hmm. your ability to work through the challenge and prepare for the challenge and also do the work after the challenge to get back up to your feet, on your feet and to be functioning and I think when it comes to capacity building it may require and this is just my uh, suggestion it mm-hmm. may require uh developing skill sets at the associate's degree level or certificate level until yeah. you're able to progress towards a full-fledged bachelor's degree or master's oh, degree sure. at a university in the bahamas or oh, even a minor a minor yeah even a minor mm-hmm. i think we have to start small and we have to improve on that small initiative until we could really like build capacity to the point where we have those higher um, degree programs but yeah I mean, dude I, th- I think I think that's very important I think it's very very important so how have you maintained vision and teamwork in your environment how do you maintain those goals those ideals in your workspace um, how do you keep perspective in terms of the overarching goal the organization has set and also collaborating with people how do you keep that in, in check
1: I think the first thing, one thing I've learned is in terms of, you know, this whole collaboration, teamwork, and everyone functioning as one well-oiled machine. One thing I've learned across time is that you have to recognize that everybody, people are different, and we must be okay with working with people who are very different from us. Different in terms of personalities, different in terms of strengths and weaknesses. You know, when you have a team, everyone is not going to be good at everything. And some persons are going to be weaker on certain things than others. It's very important to identify the strengths of each person and you allow them to work in that space where they're strongest at. And you don't necessarily put people in weak, where they're weakest. You know, you find someone who is strong in that area and who could possibly help them. So I think what I've learned too, is, you know, really understanding your team members. That plays a big role. You have mm-hmm. to understand who you're working with. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people are not comfortable sharing what they're strong. When not, what they're strong. People are very comfortable with that. Oh yeah. In my experience: people are very uncomfortable talking about their weaknesses. Yeah. And I think you know, one thing that I've, one thing I learned, a skill that I would have, you know, learned in another when I worked in another organization was when we had to do when we had to work together especially on big projects one of the things is I'd always ask people, what is it that you don't like to do what is something that you're weak at we always began with that why because then we knew simply which areas not to give a person or where not to put their focus because at that point if, at, at, if you're doing if you're not moving intentionally in terms of understanding each other then you're only going to have issues later on so it's really yeah. good to understand you know which areas persons you know may not be as strong in so, one, you may be able to um, partner them with someone who is strong in that area so that they can gradually develop those skills with time. And then mm-hmm. two, initially, especially if you need the project come off the ground in a very quick time frame, mm-hmm. you usually want to put persons who are stronger in certain areas in certain to, to complete certain tasks.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. I completely agree. Because, you know, I can even think of certain aspects of like analysis, chemical analysis, where I know I can improve on. Even case in point, I'll be quite frank with you. Um, when it comes to advanced mass spec, of course, I can do mm-hmm. a mass spec, advanced mass spec analysis. Um, even some like cosy and those those are just different types of NMR and um, nuclear magnetic resonance spectrum. Those types of things require me to take a second look to do a little bit more work to really understand what's going on when you deal with a specific molecule. Uh, when it comes to like running through mechanisms, running through retrosynthetic analysis, running through a nice modular synthetic procedure, those things I could do. Um, just give me the schema, give me the, ing- the reagents, let me run through it, let me review it beforehand, and we could go, we game. Yep. We could, yeah, we I- get. I'll come in clutch, that type of thing. <laughs> but but the reality is there are other areas where I have to spend more time, and I have to like get help from other people because they have more knowledge. They find that area more enjoyable. They also have more skill in that area skills. and yes, I think yes. I think we have to be I think you make a you bring up a very important point we have to be okay with sharing the areas that we are not as you could say it differently you could say not as strong and on your skills are not as pronounced in yep. that area or Agreed. you are not as uh, agile in that area We have to be okay with sharing that because I think um, growth and authenticity are rarely delinked you have to be aware of yourself and you have to be authentic when you're trying to grow as an individual especially in a yeah. professional community. i love that
1: Yeah, yes, i love
0: that yeah yeah dude so um why uh did you choose uh why did you choose north dakota state university to do your phd at you, l- you spoke about it earlier was it also the social environment too or was it primarily the academic uh emphasis that played a role in deciding NDSU as a university?
1: So I would say it was it was it was two things. It was you know, I, I studied in the Bahamas, I studied in the Caribbean, I wanted a different experience, I wanted a different exposure. I was I am a black man and I lived in a predominantly white state. Um I'm from the Caribbean, fought Climate. And I live in a very cold state.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. I knew those things going straight out the gate. I knew what I was going to, you know, face, but but I think in that experience, it would have taught me a lot. Uh-huh. You know. Um. So that was one. I was open to the challenge. I was open. In, I was open to experiencing something different. You know, coming out of my comfort zone. I yeah. felt like I needed. I felt like I needed that to grow a bit more. Uh huh. Yeah. And. That's the first thing. And then secondly, it was really the academics, the department, the Department of Emergency Management and Disaster Science at North Dakota State University, in my opinion, is very phenomenal, Um, you know, in terms of how they understand, how they view disaster management and, of course, their philosophy. They're very big on teaching, research and practice. Um, So, for example, while I taught, I did I did research, Um, you know, I did a lot of engagement with I worked with the inter-American development Bank while student. That was hard to do, but I did it. And I also yeah. taught. I taught. I taught um, um, emergencies, disasters, and catastrophes for, I think, about five semesters. And, you know, when that balance, you know, to me was ideal for, for a field like disaster management. You needed to have that, you know, that trio, the Holy Trinity, you know, research, theory, research, practice, and teaching those yeah, three yeah. things go hand in hand and mm-hmm. I when I saw that I loved that yeah. um, and then secondly North Dakota State University is a R one institution very research intensive um, so I knew that going to that institution you know I would have that support in
0: mm-hmm. terms of
1: being in a rigorous research environment and that it was
0: yeah that's good dude that's good so yeah dude I completely agree in that you know Sometimes you said you mentioned how you worked at the IDB even as a student, and it was um, said it was hard. But I'm sure you benefited uh, significantly from that experience. Of Am I right?
1: Yes, of course, of course. Yeah,
0: so yeah, so even when it came to me in graduate school, dude, I worked on the podcast, I worked on other things as well. I volunteered, I helped out with the foundations, the science and mathematics program, the science summer institute. There are a lot of things, you know. It it's almost like when you understand yourself and you understand. Your capacity to handle certain things, and you have your self-care measures in place, your boundaries in place. It's good to push. It's good to pursue those goals. It's good to do a little bit extra to make sure that at the end of the day you have the toolkit of skills that you want, and also the breadth of experiences, both academic, personal, and social, that you would have wanted during those four or five years you did uh, in some training program. So yeah, that's good. Um, so what advice do you have to those wanting to pursue the field you're currently working in and what has been some of the most beneficial advice you have received?
1: Um, persons who are interested in pursuing a degree in disaster management, whether it's at the bachelor's, master's or doctoral level, I think one advice I would tell them is make sure that you really look and you understand how your department or your unit views, disaster management. That's going to be very important. Okay. Like I said, some you know, some universities house these degree programs in sociology departments. Some of them stand alone. Some of them in geography departments. And where their position is heavily going to influence their curriculum. And I'm going to tell, I would tell anyone to pay very, very keen attention to that. I can't tell someone where to go. You know, I mean, I, I wouldn't tell someone run away from engineering or run away from geography or run away from the public admin people, but it's truly your interest. Mm-hmm. What do you want to do? Mm-hmm. And where you see yourself going. That's yeah. the first thing. Yeah. Because when you have an emerging field like disaster management, it's going to have, it's going to take a while for everyone to get on the same accord mm-hmm. in terms of how we philosophically view the field. That in, that in and of itself is an entire podcast and it is a conversation that academics continue to have in the literature, especially those engaged in disaster research and especially disaster management, higher education research. That is a podcast in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So I would tell people to be aware of that. Be aware of the emerging nature of the field. Uh Uh-huh. The second thing in terms of what advice that I have gotten, I think the advice that stayed with me, you know, the, that really stuck with me was one of my supervisors actually my supervisor at the idB we had just completed a very very successful um symposium we had gotten the success we you know we had restored client trust we had, we had done a exceptionally well the team had done very well
0: yeah.
1: and one thing my supervisor told me was that she told me never to lose my human touch you know she always told me that regardless of how many degrees you get, Mm -hmm. how many job offers you get she Mm -hmm. said she told me she reminded me to stay stay humble to be to remain as humble as i was yeah and because when you remain humble when you keep that human touch you know people are going to want to work with you more you make things very easier to do and you know it's just going to be better for a team a lot of times and i say this as a phd some phds are the most difficult people to work with Um, And I say that as a PhD. So whoever has an issue with it, they can come to me personally. But Mm -hmm. PhDs can sometimes be the most difficult people to work with, Mm -hmm. simply because they're not grounded. And I think, you know, that really stuck with me, because from my personal experiences working with some people, Mm -hmm. you know, especially academicians, it can be very, very difficult. Uh, so, you know, my my advice, and I give that to anyone out there. Stay grounded. Always yeah. be open to hearing the views and opinions of others. You don't know everything. You'll never know anything. Yep. Learn to respect the opinions of each other.
0: I agree. That's very important. You know, yeah, and from my faith perspective, it talks about God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And, yes. that, and, and, you know, that plays out in a lot of ways. Your ability to interact with people and to interact well with people. Humility is a large component in that, and humility is not bashing yourself or downing your skills. Humility is having an authentic and realistic outlook on your strengths, weaknesses, and opportunities presented to you. So yeah, dude, I think that's very good. That's a very important point. And you know, it's important for you to consider, like, as you're pursuing a field, and this is something, a perspective I gained as I went through it. So you don't have to understand everything that we say in this episode for the first listen. You can feel free to re-listen and re-listen as much as you need to. So, this is the thing. You know, you have skills, you have time, and you also have value. And those are like three axes, if you will. And You have to think (laughs) about how do the skills I'm getting now translate over time? Will they still be as valuable to me and to others as they are now in the next 5, 10, or 15 years? That's why climate change is such a hard topic because in such a hot area to get skills in or have a degree of competency in because mm-hmm. trends are leaning towards that heavily in terms of investing in climate change, infrastructure, climate change, resilience, having an understanding of what it takes to be resilient, all of those things, given the current situation on our planet. And then also, like you said, It's important to understand how your field is emerging and how it's burgeoning and how it's developing and what are like those hot topics, if you will, in your field, like in biology and chemistry, like having an understanding of what we call the OM, like the genome, the lipidome, the proteome, which basically Mm -hmm. is referring to the entire profile of a subclass of macromolecules Um, or a class of macromolecules like proteins, lipids, um, Mm facts, all those things. Um, that's a very uh, like in a way it's it's hot and it's people are now looking at the perspective or looking at use from the perspective of how does my understanding of the lipidome translate into me making an impact with this specific pathology how is my understanding of a specific subset of the genome within this organism complement to me having some ability to determine some type of drug pathway or some awesome. uh some cycle or some function in the body how can yes. i shut how can i implement some loss of function mutation those types of things and all of those things are, they're coming from like this impetus that the ohm genome proteome metabolome lipidome is providing so yeah that's very important but yeah trevor thank you so much for joining me today it was so good to have you as a guest 2, 3, and four, 5, biochemistry is the chemistry of life, with C, N, O, H, Calcium, P, K, S, at 95%, the dry weight best, yet most of the organism can falter, since they are 70% water, Theories on origin postulate and say that life today arose from simple organic molecules. Polymerization of them is a fact. When com- completed self-replication capacity intact, come part mentalization, membrane formation, endosymbiosis for prokaryotic to eukaryotic formation. Look at the mitochondria and we can see evidence of Margulis ideas most definitely with the kernel you before the kernel pro with the membrane you with no membrane bound pro yo bae yo b-a-e bacteria archaea and eukarya i say b-a-e eukaryotes are like your animal and plant and fungi cells prokaryotes Like your bacteria and archaea. Bacteria and archaea are similar outwardly, but different inwardly. Let's recap. With a thermodynamics wrap. First law state. Never destroyed or created, energy is always conserved. Continuing on to the next verse, second law states, oh, learn about entropy at least from the basis of the micro state. In the system, it tends to increase. Constant, as this verse, is the entropy of the universe. Third law states, completely zero Kelvin, or absolute crystalline solid at zero. I'll tell you a thing or two about the... Ideas of Josiah Gibbs. Ideas. You know who? Josiah Gibbs. The energy to do work. Gibbs free energy. When positive, non favored. When negative, favorite Enthalpy. When positive, endo. When negative, exo. So. So, I will dare you to do your very best. But before dare, let's talk about Le Chatelier. If a system is at equilibrium and one of the parameters is changed, the system will shift so as two. Restore the equilibrium, since it, it is adored, respected, controlled, redirected. Ideally, simple and steady state. Yeah, that is very great. Quick mats. Oh yeah. Quick facts. Oh yeah. Quick review with you know who. My Mitochondria is like the Bank of America, but it produces energy, currencies to help the cell run efficiently. The processes, the cycles, the paths, it helps the cell run its machinery efficiently. Let's talk about the main big chief, the Nucleus, the cellular CEO or executive branch. It ensures regulation and successful replication, it ensures good maintenance of good information, it ensures the blueprint is followed correctly with the other members helping cooperatively the executive branch, your nucleus, ensuring organization on every cytoskeletal branch, Golgi. Golgi. I am, the producer of the PTMs, post-translational modifications, with your elegant glycosylations Ribosome satisfactory, the protein synthesis factory, SER, smooth endoplasmic reticulum lipid modification, synthesis of steroid hormones and it is in the detoxification zone. RER Rough endoplasmic reticulum Modifies packages and transports those proteins in that cellular cord. Centrioles Shine in anaphase During that replicative cellular dance The vacuole You may see it in a microscope, in a cell, by chance, cytoskeleton, keeping the show intact, with kinesin, dynin, and myosin, titan, like that. These help with that vesicular transport race. They help to keep the cytoskeletal members in place. Dynamic as they are, they are some of the main stars. Let's look a little closer with those glycogen granules in the occasional cellular space. Hold on. Let's keep pace. Testing. Two, three, and for five. Biochemistry is the chemistry of life, intermolecular force, covalent bonds, protein levels of structure. Linear is one level with those amino acid chains, primary, that is called and that is a fact. Moving up with the beta strands, then sheets and the alpha helices, they meet. Secondary then has made its stop. 3D structure and the tertiary just drop. With those subunits, most definitely, we have finally reached the quaternary. Testing 2, 3, and 4, 5. Biochemistry is the chemistry of life. DNA with its adenine deoxyribose and phosphate hydrogen bonding to that late. then with the G triply hydro bonded to the C triply hydrogen bonded to the C the guanosine phosphate cytosine phosphate in Parts the chief nucleic acid is made of nucleotides from the DNA with the histones to the beads on a string your nucleosomes to the chromatin making your chromosomes order regulation on your signaling cascades SG1 G2 and M. Testing. 2, 3, and 4, 5. Biochemistry is the chemistry of life. Water. Water. On the wall. With the dipole and dipole. Bonds. With the hydrogen bonds you see. It's intermolecular bonds. Elegantly, high heat of fusion just think allows water to act as a heat sink, a high heat of vaporization. IMFs complement the solution of most polar compounds and its ice is less dense than liquid water, 70%. Of the organism, and yes, they still can falter. Testing two, three, four, and five. Biochemistry is the chemistry of life. Testing two, three, and four, five. Biochemistry is the chemistry of life.